In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. This past Sunday, we were unable to capture the recording of a section of Proverbs, uh, specifically Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9, through chapter 19, verse 4. And for the sake of those of you who may be uh, watching online or following the series, we wanted to, at least in a bare-bones kind of way, recover that material. So that's what this recording is. And as an aside, grateful for you and for your support, your willingness to study God's Word with us, and of course our continual prayer uh, as pastor, as staff, as people involved with the technology Our continued prayer is that God would use his word to grow your faith, strengthen your faith, and lighten your heart in this time of present darkness with that light that is Christ Jesus, our Savior. And to study the light and especially the wisdom of his word here in Proverbs in such a way that it takes root in your perception of reality, it takes root in all your sayings and doings and Our prayer is that it is an encouragement to you and a blessing to you as you face down the powers of darkness as we engage in that spiritual warfare that God has set before us. Jumping in at chapter 18, verse 9, and this has, of course, been covered in the previous recorded session. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys And I'm reminded of that quotation, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Whoever is slack in his work, whoever does nothing, is a brother to him who destroys. We can contemplate this in all kinds of earthly fashions and manners, but spiritually speaking, the one who destroys is Satan, and he has an utter lack of creativity. God creates, and he seeks to mangle and destroy that creation. It's the nature of evil. It's one of the great weaknesses of evil. It's just empty. It's just God says yes, and evil says no, or God says no, and evil says yes. It's no more sophisticated. It's no more creative than that. Satan wanting to mar and disfigure and destroy all those things that our good God has created. And if we as Christians don't engage in our vocations, the vocatio, the holy callings of God, then by our inaction, we are a friend of Satan, a friend to the one who destroys. Same way by analogy, Your house is falling apart around you, even if you've just had it remodeled, just had it painted, just had it freshened up. It's already on its way to decay. You have to actively keep up that house. That's how all our vocations are. That's how God's creation itself is in this fallen world. We have to fight tooth and nail to not only maintain, but gain and regain ground. So that's the business that we need to be about and the way in which this proverb directs us. Again, those core vocations be in Scripture, being you're born as a child, as a son or a daughter. So bare minimum, you have that vocation. If God grants it, you are a husband or a wife. If God grants it, you are a parent of your own child or children. And then, likewise, uh, masters and slaves is the language of the scriptures. Of course, we put in employers and employees in our context, and that works just as well. God would have us serve in these holy vocations with the primary sense that we are serving him. And that we serve him, this is our holy and royal priesthood. We serve him as priests, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, 
precisely when we are faithful in those callings to which God has called us. So there's a lot of sacrifice involved in being a husband and a lot of sacrifice involved in being a wife. Same, of course, for being parents of children, but also of being children toward parents, particularly as parents get up there in age and they start to need more and more help or guidance or they can't accomplish things they used to be able to. Sacrifice for the employer as he seeks to provide fair wages and fair working conditions for those underneath his care. And also um, there is, of course, sacrifice on the part of the laborers, of the employees, as they sacrifice working not for a human boss, but for a divine master, our Savior Jesus Christ, which manifests itself in the service of that. Ah, so this is the hidden inner reality of the spiritual priesthood and each day making of ourselves, of our lives, a living sacrifice. You know, sacrifice to put something to death. We each day live to put ourselves to death in the in the service of others and to the glory of God. So we glimpse those things here. Um, in this proverb, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. That's not what we want to be about. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the study note in your Lutheran study Bible will point out, only here does Proverbs use the phrase, quote, the name of the Lord or the name of Yahweh, end quote. So there is significance here. And of course, it's a significance. The name of the Lord is intimately connected with the place of worship, even preceding the tabernacle and preceding the temple. The name of the Lord is indicative of a place of worship, a place of his presence, a place where sacrifice uh, does in fact take place, that we may be in the presence of a God who is entirely righteous, entirely holy, etc. The name of the Lord is then upon the temple, and for the Lord to place his name upon you means that you, individually if you like, become part of the collective temple of God, the you plural that is the temple of God, as we read in 1 Corinthians. So, God's name is placed upon you in the waters of holy baptism. You are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thus, with his name upon you, you become a member, a part of that temple that is his people. Here envisioned, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That is, it's a place of refuge, as Luther And the great reformation, him a mighty fortress is our God. Same sentiment here. The Lord is a strong tower. We can run to God and be kept safe within God. So beautifully penned that line in Luther's hymn. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, or wife. Though these all be gone, they yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. So this is the the beautiful and wonderful power that we need to realize has been given to us as Christians. That Christ, by his death on the cross, has destroyed sin. Luther has a wonderful way of talking about this in his lectures on Galatians, that he, in, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us, so that he becomes the sin of sin. By becoming sin, he destroys sin. So also Luther, uh, he the immortal one, by dying, destroys death. And thus also destroys the power of that evil one, whose greatest power is death. So he's the sin of sin and the death of death. And Luther goes on in his typically poetic way, he's the Satan of Satan and the hell of hell. But he's vanquished these powers. And this isn't some sort of theological fiction or some sort of non-reality. Christ has destroyed the power of sin. We cannot be beholden to it. Man or 
Satan comes and says, here are your sins. You say, hey, you left out a few. And by the way, they're not my sins either. Christ has taken them from me. So that leverage point is completely taken away. Then also, the one who has the power of death, Satan, and of course, his entire uh, ministry of fallen angels, they leverage death over us in all kinds of different forms, all kinds of different fears. You're going to lose your reputation or your job. You're going to lose your uh, career or your status. You're going to lose your wife or your family. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your health. Uh, You're going to lose your freedom and be put into jail. You're going to um, uh, lose your life, be put away in jail forever, or uh, be tortured or be killed or executed or whatever the case may be. This fear of death is removed by Christ because he has so thoroughly destroyed death. And we have to, especially the men, because we are made by God for this purpose. And to be the rock of our families, to provide for them, but also to protect them, we also then need to understand what it is to be men after the image of Christ. And that is to be faithful unto death, because we know that all loss and all death is overturned by Christ. Though we die, yet shall we live. And indeed, whoever lives and believes in Christ will never die. He transforms death into this great gain, this graduation, so to speak, into heavenly glories. So we as men in particular, as people in general, need to meditate on the real militarism of the church and the spiritual warfare that we fight. The name of the Lord remains our strong tower, our mighty fortress. Let them come and take what God allows them to take. It will be restored unto us. That's kind of the beautiful thing. If, If you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. If you fear something else, then you have to fear God. So, God is our strong tower. and What a blessing that is. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Okay, well, obviously, much, much more could be said on that, but I'm going to keep things moving and indeed pick up the pace a little as we go along here. Verse 11, now this is a bit of a contrast with verse 10. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. So right away you can see the strong tower and the strong city. You can see the righteous man, or in this case, the rich man. The rich man runs not to the Lord. The righteous man runs to the Lord. The rich man runs to his wealth. It is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. Isn't that a great way of putting it. It's a strong city and a high wall, but only in his imagination. You know, that's the allure of wealth. Is it's, it's something that we all as Christians have to really pay close attention to because part of our desire for more and more wealth, if we're willing to be just completely honest about our sinful nature, it's a desire to not need God. It's a desire to not have to pray. It's a desire to have our barns so filled up that we can simply eat, drink, relax, be merry, say to my soul, soul, you've got it all, you've got it made, let's just build another barn as our wealth produces more and more wealth, so on and so forth, we'll live happily ever after. That looks like a life of blessing to the fallen human nature, to the new man, that is a life of curse. That is a life of having mammon as one's God rather than having a loving, glorious relationship with our Heavenly Father who opens his hand and graciously satisfies our desires and the desire of every living thing and who, through his Son, teaches us to pray for daily bread and also gives us this wonderful wisdom that's sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Live one day at a time trusting him is a much better way than trying to build up this great strong city or this great high wall of wealth. Why? Well, 
in the parable I was just referencing, God says to that man with the many barns who says, eat, drink, and be merry, you fool. Tonight your life is required of you. God is a protection against death. Wealth is not. Plus, wealth is gone in the blink of an eye. We're even seeing that in a terrible tragedy and crime being perpetrated against the middle class here in this country. We're seeing wealth evaporate, just not by any fault of the middle class, not by any fault of very hardworking people and people who have saved, but through the policies of our government and the countless printing of money and the handing out of money to foreign countries and the handing out of money to people who don't have jobs and um, generally have as their primary job burning cities and stealing uh, from, from hardworking American stores. So we have a lot of evil and a lot of corruption in our government um, and in our nation. Obviously, as Christians, we stand 100% opposed to that. And we hold our government accountable because our government is under the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our government is accountable to Him. And we are well within our bounds to point out how our government and our leaders are failing in their duties and how they're going to be held accountable to our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea that uh, wealth will protect us is rampant. This idea that wealth and our military spending and everything else, this is the way that every great nation throughout all of history has felt right before God cuts it down from the knees. This is the kind of arrogance and haughtiness, we'll get to a proverb about this in a minute, that God cannot stomach and cannot stand not good for people to simply be enslaved to the idol of mammon, the idol of wealth. Rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Twelve, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So very similar to our gospel reading from this uh, this coming Sunday, I think it is this coming Sunday, where we're going to hear Jesus say, uh, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Very, very similar sentiment to this psalm. Pride goeth before the fall, the haughty heart goeth before destruction, God will see to it, but humility comes before honor. Now, I would... um, I would contrast this in general, while it is true on rare occasion that humility is recognized by men and honored by men. (laughs) Not very frequently, is it? I mean, go ahead and try if you think I'm wrong. I think in view of that reality, this honor, we should think of primarily as honor coming before God. When you humble yourself, other men just overlook you and it's wise to pause and say, well, why do I want their praise anyway? But rather to humble oneself is precisely to commend oneself to God, not men. And we can see this even in Christ in his earthly ministry, how men forsook him and sought to trample over him and didn't care what he said. And he was humble, being reviled. He did not revile, etc. As a Lamb before its shears is silent, so was our Lord Jesus Christ in his passion. So he humbles himself, commends himself to God, receives honor, and that's a great pattern for us. Okay, so pride, money, all this stuff, that's the target. And in this section, you know, we're we're really considering a foolish son avoiding fools and foolishness. And this haughtiness and this wealth is foolishness in the sight of God. It's wisdom in the sight of the world. Think of all the movie stars and athletes and every, you know, rap artists, musicians. It's all haughtiness. It's all haughtiness. It's all arrogance. It's all money. It's all bling. It's all in your face all the time. You have to hate these things because the Lord hates them. We need uh, a humble, legitimate, wholesome, honest, good humanity evermore being conformed into the image of God who is all these things. In total. 
Okay, 13 is an easy one to grasp. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. We could file this proverb under that category I've just very loosely been say, uh, calling slow down. The proverbs of slow down. Slow down and think before you speak. Slow down to listen. Slow down to plan. Just great wisdom that's earthly in, in application as well as more spiritual or heavenly. You want to think through what, what do I intend to do with this word? What do I intend to do with this deed? Is that a godly and good purpose? Yes. Then how can I go about that in order to bring about that end? Is it not a godly end or purpose? Then I should turn aside from that wicked way and toward the, toward the path of righteousness. So here's an example of slow down, use your ears, don't wait your turn to speak when you're talking to someone, actually listen. Maybe just one more aside here. You know, we live in a world that's just drowning with noise. Drowning with noise. There's social media, there's internet, there's TVs. Living rooms still are around. We're almost always plugged in, almost always receiving data and information. And there is a craving deep within the soul of your neighbors, maybe even yourself, that's not being met. And that is to actually be heard. And then, of course, in light of this proverb, to hear and to have real conversation and real connection. And Of course, as Christians, we want to have our conversations with what's in view with them. Is, and I know there's small talk and all of that. I'm not trying to present this in an overly pious way. But where we have serious conversations, let's say, we definitely want to have in mind, how can I further this person in their life with Christ? How can I get this person closer to the kingdom or more secure in the kingdom or um, on a path that's going to lead them in the heavenly way unto eternal life? Those are the kinds of things we want to slow down, listen to our neighbor, consider it, and then give an answer. Um, We don't want to rush to just hear ourselves talk. That's folly and shame. 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. So a kind of contrast going on here that, look, you know, when you're sick, you can just put up with it, and your spirit is the thing that has to endure. But when your spirit itself is crushed, what is that thing that can sit and endure? Nothing. The spirit itself, the thing which endures when you're physically ill, is now itself crushed. When a spirit is crushed... The only place in which we can turn profitably is to God, to the great physician and healer of our souls, to the one who uh, does not break the bruised reed, does not snuff out the smoldering wick, but ra- and by his word will indeed create us anew, regenerate us, renew us, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. From Psalm 51 and from our liturgy, when our spirit is crushed, it is unbearable and there's none who can help save one. And this crushing of the spirit happens from time to time, happens in degree. Uh, It is um, maybe worth considering C.S. Lewis, quote, that pain is God's megaphone. But it is also, I think, worth considering that along with um, physical sickness, so you have the crushed spirit, a kind of soul sickness, spirit injury, (laughs) the crushed spirit. And then you have the spirit enduring sickness, bodily illness. It's good to consider both of these things in a very different way than modern Americans frequently consider these things. Uh, I ran across this great quote somewhere. We view sickness as something that needs to be cured. We should rather view sickness as the cure. That is to say, sicknesses 
are laid upon us by God for medicinal purposes. They are laid upon us by the God who afflicts us and puts crosses upon us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Tying the two ideas together, he will physically afflict us and spiritually afflict us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us, because he is a father disciplining us, because he is a potter shaping and forming clay and conforming us into the image of his son. Now, this is essential to keep in mind. And on past Sunday, we had some dialogue on this. I won't be able to do the conversation justice. But I do want to bring up this idea, too, that when you receive sickness from God, it is an opportunity to worship. One of the, and it is in a sense, God saying, hey, take a time out. You're too busy. You're too preoccupied. You need to slow down. You need to consider need to pray. When you're sick, who feels like praying? You say, oh, well, it doesn't need to be fancy prayers. Draw near to the Lord when you experience physical illness, mental illness, spiritual illness, whatever the case may be. Know that through these things he's conforming you into the image of Christ. Just as he lays affliction and cross upon Christ, he lays affliction and cross upon you. He loves Christ. He loves you. He's reforming you into the the image of that capital M, man. One of the ideas we have to thoroughly get rid of is this, I don't know, it is my way to overstate things. Maybe not thoroughly get rid of, but we need to move beyond it. There's this idea of utilitarianism. Like, well, if I'm sick, but somebody else benefits, then it's worth it. Or if I'm laid up in the hospital, then it's worth it. Or old age, you know, you You did everything right so you could live into your 80s and 90s, but then you're all locked away wondering why the heck you did that in the first place because it isn't fun being there. Many, many uh, of our older folks um, will say and, and lament, you know, I don't know why God has me here. I don't know what the purpose is. I just want to go home uh, to heaven. I just want to, you know, die. And some ways, that's a pious, this pious thoughts. We should long for home and long for righteousness and long for an end to the, the burden of sin and the curse we experience. But there, this sense of meaninglessness, this kind of nihilism, infects us because we look at everything utilitarian. I don't see any purpose. I don't see any use. I'm not doing anyone good. But we need to hear in this proverb and in the light of other words of God, come to view it differently. That your suffering, your faithfulness under the affliction, your faithfulness under the sickness, your faithfulness under the cross, your faithfulness under whatever, anfechtung, that's the German word for spiritual affliction, or tentatio, Latin word for spiritual affliction. These are opportunities to, bare minimum, remain in the faith. Bare minimum. Then, extrapolating from there, to give thanks to God for what you do have. To bear that affliction and that cross faithfully. To turn to him, not in, not in hate, not in anger, not in indignancy, but to turn to him for help and for strength. And to rely on him and trust on him, to walk with him, to, um, as, as our Lord, even when he's hanging from the cross, he cries out in prayer to God and That's what we should do, too. We're being trained here spiritually, raised up as sons to be in the image of the one Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And as our hearts are conformed this way, they're also being conformed into the image of our Father. So, I want you to be ahead of this. You know, in many ways, my job as a pastor is to prepare you for the Lord's return and prepare you for death should you die before he returns. You want to get ahead of this because it's, by and large, too late to learn these things when you're already laying in the bed in the nursing home embittered. You need to learn these things in advance. And it can really help with the aging process, too, especially with the accumulation of aches and pains and doctor's visits and interconnected issues. Just relax and realize that this is your opportunity as a royal priest, as a holy priest, to worship, to keep
keep the faith, to give thanks to God, in the language of Job, Scripture, of course. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. When he gives, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. What about when he takes away? That's the whole second half of life. You know, the whole first half of life he gives. And we say, blessed be the Lord. The whole second half of life he starts taking away. The question is, can we still say, blessed be the Lord? And we're brought to a kind of wholeness and completion. If, while he's blessing and giving even while he's afflicting and taking away, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the kind of thing that has value in God's sight. That is the kind of thing, to use the language of Scripture, which is always clunky in English, a gracious thing in his sight, a precious thing in his sight. God doesn't care about gold or silver. God doesn't care about all that stuff like we do. What God cares about is these kinds of things, the spiritual treasures and the shining forth of his saints. Scriptures say the death of the saints is precious in God's sight. And if the death is precious, then so also are the afflictions, the crosses, the pains, the sicknesses, the sufferings borne by us, even as we remain faithful. Now, not a single other person could see any of that. Not a single other person could benefit anything from that. It's not utilitarianism that matters. It's not that this has some utility. It has value in and of itself. Because God has called you into being to be his own beloved son. And God has called you into being and to conform you into the image of his beloved son. It's the beautiful line from St. Paul and then in the book of Concord that talks about God before the foundation of the world deciding not only to call you in time and space and give you faith and save you, but before the time, before the world even began, not only to call you, but then to determine exactly what crosses and afflictions he would lay upon you to conform you into greater and greater glory, greater and greater proximity to the gloriousness of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the project. So, as we look at our old age, we want to see it in light of the cross. And of course, it's not a wooden cross like Jesus. It's a cross nonetheless. That's why our Lord says, take up your cross and follow me. So, you need to realize that and realize that Jesus is teaching you how to be a priest and how to pray and worship and conduct your worship of God in the midst of affliction, cross, and suffering. That imbues it with meaning. Okay, well, much more could be said there and probably was said on Sunday as we had some interaction, but I've done the best I can to recap that for you here. So a man's spirit will endure sickness, and there is a way to endure that sickness but a crushed spirit who can bear. And indeed, we have to turn to God for healing of the crushed soul. 15. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Oh, yeah, just like it's a terrible spiritual condition to be in, to say, hey, my barns are full, I don't want anything else. Like, you're already full, you're already rich. You're too full and rich with these lower things to have any of the higher things that God offers. Here's another aspect of that. Well, I read the catechism back in 7th or 8th grade, back in 1979. I think I know it all. (laughs) That kind of arrogance, that kind of fullness and richness uh, is a curse. It's one of the worst spiritual conditions to be in. The heart no longer acquires acquires knowledge. The ear no longer seeks knowledge. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Part of the joy of being God's children and a joy we never grow out of. I would even argue in heaven. I would even argue in the new heavens and the new earth. A joy we never grow out of is the joy of learning and knowing God ever more fully. So an intelligent heart acquires knowledge continuously and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge continuously. You know, and just as, just as I meditated a moment ago on uh, we've got to get rid of this utilitarian idea. Well, if it's benefiting someone else, then okay, but who's this benefiting? Yeah, we've got to get rid of that because it has a value if for no other reason that it's between you and your maker. 
and he made you for him. Here also is the case. You know, sometimes Christians say, well, my kids are all grown up, or my grandkids are scattered around. Um, I'm not a preacher. I don't lead a Bible study. What business do I have constantly acquiring the knowledge of the Lord, constantly seeking the word of the Lord's knowledge? And the answer is because that has value in and of itself. You don't need to get any utility out of it or any mileage out of it. God gives you treasures simply for the fact of cherishing them in your heart. Simply for the fact of marveling them and exploring them. You know, little kids, they just, you hand them something, they love it, they play with it. Same thing with us. God gives us some perception, some aspect of wisdom, some spiritual truth, some profound uh, awakening about the nature of reality or the nature of ourselves or the nature of his creation. Delight in these things. Marvel in these things. Play with these things. These are gifts from God. No utility needed. Delight in the knowledge that God gives you. And uh, even if that knowledge isn't yours to communicate, or even if you're incapable of communicating it, what a precious, priceless gift. You know, I'd rather have that than one single nugget of God's knowledge um, than all the wealth in the world. All the wealth in the world, you can have that and be absolutely miserable because you don't have God. You don't have the one for whom you were made. But you have God you have one word from his mouth to reveal, by which he reveals himself to you. You've got everything. So worth, uh, worth considering that too. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Okay, 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Yeah, we, I think we would reflect on this profitably in the tragic sense that not a, not a man himself, not even a man by virtue of his merits or his ability to earn it, but simply by, the, by virtue of the gift, the, maybe even a bribe, he makes room for himself. And so rich men are, are privileged in this sense, uh, not before God because he doesn't care one iota for our money. And of course, this gift also brings him before the great. So that's one possible meditation, but this uh, proverb invites many, many um, different takes and uh, exploration of different facets. You know, I can think of Jesus with the parable of the dishonest manager, where uh, the, the man is commended as being shrewd, and he's commended for his shrewdness. Now, what he does, he's unrighteous, the text says, and he's deceitful. What he does is wicked, but what's commended is the shrewdness that he cuts his master's debts. He uses money to achieve the end that he has in view, which is to be able to go in and have a place to live since his stewardship has ended. And then Christ, of course, commends us to be shrewd and laments that the sons of light aren't as shrewd in general as the sons of darkness. Um, this encouragement to look at wealth not as an end unto itself, but as a means that we use and to have our end purpose uh, plain in our minds, that end purpose being um, salvation, eternal friends dwelling in their tents forever. Okay, so in that sense, you, that's a very positive sense, using the gift, using the money um, to make room um, for ourselves uh, and make eternal friends and make room for ourselves in their tent. Um, so that would be a, a way of understanding this positively. I think the study note, note here has a, has a kind of positive earthly take on it. Generous people make friends. I mean, that's a very pious way of looking at this. The goodwill, um, the goodwill they create opens avenues for their advancement. Okay, so, yeah, maybe so. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what you think about that. There are other aspects we could meditate upon too, but I'm going to keep us moving. 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Any parents know this firsthand. You know, the kiddo comes up and, ah, she hit me. You know, it sounds like a grave injustice has been done. Then the other one comes and you find out, well, he poked me first. Yeah, so on and so forth. Parents are very familiar with this. Um, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Yeah, so what, what would we do with this? Again, I think we would take this proverb and stick it under that category of slow down. 
Um, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't make a snap judgment. Don't listen to one side of the story without listening to the others. It takes two to tango. Um, get all the information before you make a sound judgment, etc. Uh, here a reminder that you, you, know, you as parents, you as a father in particular in your house, you're given an office and vocation of judgment. You have to discern what's right and wrong. You have to reward and punish. You're in an office that has to judge. If you don't handle injustices in your household, um, that's not going to be good for your kiddos. They're going to let you know about that too. Uh, And then likewise, um, those who are fathers in the civil sphere, um, they are to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. That's what the scriptures say. That's their service to us under Christ. And where they rebel against this, we ought to point that out and be prepared to resist them if necessary. Same also with uh, fathers on the right-hand kingdom, in the right-hand kingdom, uh, the estate of the church, our spiritual fathers there, as the large catechism, uh, fourth commandment, uh, speaks of spiritual fathers and, of course, the obedience we owe them, as long as they're teaching us what is right and true in accord with God's word. And uh, they can be abusive of that too, and they can be, we can need to re- be uh, rebellious toward them in a loving and circumspect way as well. Um, but these positions are positions of judgment, and they're positions of discernment, and even pastors have to make judgments and discernments, and it's a great sin for a pastor to keep his mouth shut where he should speak, or if he speaks where he should keep his mouth shut. So these, it's important for us to look at this, these as uh, fatherhoods, um, earthly fathers, civil fathers, churchly fathers, to realize that these are positions of judgment, but they need to be slow to judge and fair in their judgments. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. All right, 18, I think we can go fast. The lot puts an end to quarrels. So biblical examples of casting lots, um, not least of which how uh, when Judas betrayed Jesus and then... um, committed suicide. His position had to be fulfilled. They found two qualified men um, who were um, appealing to the church, and they, then they cast a lot. Because as Christians, we know there's no such thing as chance or luck. So um, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was able to fill in that position. So um, much to be said here, and I've said it elsewhere and earlier, about the lot and this idea of following God's word, getting everything lined up, and then if there's two, um, you know, instead of being divided, like, hey, we want this guy to be our pastor, or we want that guy to be our pastor, you know, and there's this division in the congregation, hey, cast a lot. Boom, that's the man. So the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A lot of wisdom in that. Okay, 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Yeah, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So, of course, the idea here is those being closest to you are the most capable of hurting you, and vice versa. By your close emotional proximity to them, um, you're able to hurt them more too. So, we want to realize that, and we want to realize that we need to be very gentle and careful with those who are nearest to us because we can easily do the most damage to them. Uh, Husbands and wives know this very well. There's a kind of vulnerability that's inherent in the relationship and ability to hurt each other uh, much more deeply um, than in other relationships, other cases. So um, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city you know, you'd be better off attacking a city and trying to take it than trying to overcome your brother when he's offended by you. So I think what would be the point of this proverb? Be ahead of that. Seek, be, again, slow down. Be very careful that what you do doesn't offend those in your near proximity. If you have offended them, go quickly to them and be reconciled. Don't let stuff build up. Don't let stuff... Um, build up to an offense such that he becomes a kind of uh, strong city or like the bars of a castle, uh, keeping you out and and making you uh, miserable. All right, well, more could be said, but we're going to move on for the sake of time here. 20. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. 
So we've got this mouth, lips, and the next verse 21, we're going to have tongues. So we kind of have this little sub-theme going on. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. I mean, could this just mean that if a man speaks well, he ends up getting paid well? He ends up in some kind of position where he, maybe, but I doubt it. Well, it's a value, but I think of more value, it's a better way to put it, of more value is considering that what you reap is what you sow. And what you speak will very frequently, you'll have to eat your words. So you want to make sure they're delicious words. Um, what you say is going to come back to you. And if you speak in a destructive way, that's going to come back to you, like with the brother. If you speak in a positive way, in an uplifting, godly way, that's going to come back to you. So the fruit of a man's mouth is this, um, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Clear enough, I think. 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. So again, just remember how powerful that tongue is in your mouth for good or for ill. James likens it beautifully to a little tiny flame that starts a whole forest on fire. So be careful because you have more power in your tongue than you think to build or to tear down life, to give life or to put to death. And again, parents to children, husbands and wives unto each other, employers and employees. We want to use our tongues in service of one another, um, our speech in service of one another, not and for life, not for not for death, not for cutting down, not for destroying. I mean, how many uh, how many dining room tables, how many lunches, how many uh, maybe families, workplaces, on and on, are just ruined by death upon the tongue. Those who love it will eat their fruits, I think is clear in light of the previous one. If you love your tongue, that is, you will use it lovingly. You will use it unto life. You will eat life. That's the sentiment there that I take from the latter half of 21. 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So the recognition here is, you know, we've been talking about a brother and now we've got the wife. And so there's some familial connection here. But um, a wife is a blessing that comes from God. And uh, that doesn't mean she's your soulmate. That's an idea to be completely avoided. In reality, God could bless you with any number of people in which you could have a fruitful, godly marriage. Um, marriage isn't, love this saying because it's so helpful, marriage isn't for your happiness. Marriage is for your holiness. And so often you know, we hear, we read of people who are getting divorced or people who are seeking you know, uh, counsel because something's happened in the relationship. And this kind of advice comes through, you know, my, my boyfriend uh, forgot to hang up my jacket for me when I had accidentally left it on the floor. Oh, you should get rid of him. You should divorce him. You should, uh, guess if it's your boyfriend, not divorce him, but you should break up with him. You know, this kind of thing. Um, very frivolous, very, if he's not making you happy, if she's not making you happy, you've got to get rid of this person because your happiness is God. Well, that puts all of the vocations that we've been talking about earlier upside down because the vocations are there to teach you not happiness but holiness. And in the end, holiness is infinitely better than happiness because happiness comes and happiness goes. And happiness can even be predicated upon wickedness, so, which is very unhappy in the long run. So holiness is of the utmost value And when God gives you a wife, he gives you a good thing. He gives you holiness. Your wife is going to be ostensible blessing to you, but she's also going to, at times, be an affliction and a curse to you. What you need to realize is that that is still a good thing. That is for your holiness. And if you have uh, the kind of soul that God would have within you, you'll come to reflect on things of how Christ loves his bride, the church, and how much more deeply the church is rebellious or a letdown or hurtful or disrespectful or rude or any of the other things we might consider. And yet Christ 
loves her, and we can marvel in that, we can aspire toward that. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. By the way, speak well of marriage, whether you've got a hard marriage or an easy marriage, uh, whether you love marriage or really uh, marriage is, is a burden to you. Speak well of it, because that's how the scriptures speak well of it. And young people need to hear that it is a gift and a blessing to have a wife. And um, the wife that God does, in fact, give you um, is fit for you. And even if you don't think so, um, the Lord will work his good purposes through that. So he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay, 23, we reflect on this reality again. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Yeah. Why do the poor use entreaties? Because they don't have any money. They uh, usually are asking for help or asking for permission or asking for a blessing or um, speaking to those who have when they have not. And so they use entreaties. But the rich, thinking themselves to have all they need, answer roughly, condescendingly, negatively. They dismiss people. They see other people as below them. So this is an interesting one to reflect on. I mean, in the end, would you rather speak with entreaties or would you rather speak roughly? I'd rather speak with entreaties (laughs) to all people. I'd rather speak kindly and softly. and um, In that sense, then it's already more of a blessing to be poor. Of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, says, Blessed are the poor, full stop. And in his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a call in this proverb to reflect on our, on our true poverty, poverty, that everything we have is a gift from God. You know, as it says in 1 Corinthians, What makes you to differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you glorying? Why are you boasting as if you had not received it? In other words, every last thing you have, your intellect, your emotions, your heart, your resources, your opportunities, your energy, your strength, your talents, your abilities, all of it is a gift given to you. What do you have of yourself? No more than I have of myself. We are all beggars. And all the more are we beggars on account of our great and insurmountable debt of sin. So we entreat We speak softly with one another. We entreat and we speak softly toward God. We confess our sins. We confess this great debt, our great poverty. As Luther says, we are all beggars. Jesus says, blessed are the beggars. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for I will pour out into your hands the kingdom of God. Beautiful, beautiful statement. Um, So you can see then how it is that in the Bible, poor, poverty, beggarly, beggarliness, dependence upon God are the virtues and are admirable and are held up while being rich, haughty, wealthy, full, reigning already, speaking to others rough, looking down your nose. Oh, that's, that's not who God is. That's who Satan is. So we can meditate on this in many different ways and maybe that's sufficient given the time that we have left. So, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Mm. One of the things that we need to recultivate are friendships. The same way, you know, this world is, Satan's target is the family, and he'll destroy the family in every way he can. His next target right now is our friendships. He wants us isolated, fragmented, atomized, not together, and we're subject to abuse, we're um, made weak. When we're collectively together as friends, when we're collectively together as family, that is the spiritual war. I know it may seem inglorious to you, um, sometimes it does to me, but the real spiritual war takes place at the dining room table, takes place on the phone, takes place as you engage with people socially, as you befriend people. This is spiritual warfare um, at the very front lines, and at the heat of the battle in our lives in this time, in this place. It's what it looks like. I know it, it always seems inglorious when you're going through it, but this is how we have to fight. 
Now, social media, you can see how that mitigates against it because how many friends do you have on Facebook or how many people follow you or whatever it is? And how many of them would actually be with you if something bad happened to you? So a man of many companions may come to ruin. A man who has tons of acquaintances but no real friend may come to ruin and everyone would just let him. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, closer even than your next of kin. I love to reflect on it in this way because Jesus calls his disciples and by extension calls us friends. In a very real sense, this proverb climaxes in him. He is that friend who sticks closer to us than a brother. There is nothing that you have said or done that would cause him to depart from you. He has come only for sinners, only for sick, only for the unclean, and he has come to forgive you and renew you and be a true friend to you. Speak the truth, even if it hurts your feelings. Correct you, even if you don't want to be corrected. And to bless you as a true friend would bless you. That's the kind of friend we want to be unto others. That's the kind of friendships we want to cultivate, especially male friendships are needed right now because this has been so under attack. You know, all the great um, examples of friendship in the Bible or great examples of friendship in Western literature are all perversely attacked by this kind of satanic insinuation that there must be homosexuality involved. It all reeks of sulfur and it all reeks of a demonic attack on male friendships, on men who are willing to lay down their lives for one another, for one another's families. I mean, indeed, if there were 10 or 12 such men who would give their lives for each other, uh, an entire church could be changed, an entire locale could be changed, um, an, an entire nation ultimately can be changed. We have to cultivate those friendships. They're so powerful. And when they're friendships in the Lord, they're unbreakable. And it, Satan knows it. And that's why he's just attacking with all his might, families and friendships. So... Um, worth taking into account this idea that there is a friend, our Lord Jesus, and by extension, we want to be and look for friends in Christ who will stick closer to us than our flesh and blood brothers. Okay, 19, 1. Better is a poor person who walks as in, in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Indeed, this one's straightforward enough. It would be better to, I mean, if, you're, if you could have no money whatsoever, you could be destitute, but if you have your integrity, you have something worth all, all the money and all the wealth in the world. You know, if you lose that integrity, you can be bought. And you're just subject to the highest bidder. You're just a mercenary. You've, you've lost who you are. You've lost your relationship with God. You now have a relationship with mammon and money and the highest bidder. You're just a slave, you're not free, bound to your own greed. So what is put before us here is, is um, this, hey, whatever it takes, retain your integrity in Christ. Speak the truth. Live not by lies. No matter what may come, uh, in terms of poverty, who cares? Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity, God says so, than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. All right, good enough. We could spend some time on the second half, but I'm already running short. Now, 19.2, um, this is a weird one, and I don't know why the ESV puts this in. It probably reads for you as it reads for me, desire without knowledge is not good. If you go over to the ESV study note on the bottom of the next column over, you'll see the little superscript number one. And you'll read there that desire could be translated a soul. And that makes a lot more sense, according to the Hebrew word there. A soul without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Okay, so again, this just in one sense factors into that uh, set of proverbs about acquiring and seeking knowledge always and a soul without knowledge is not good like the, the soul we are designed to have knowledge and the knowledge of God um, within us and to receive that knowledge of God perpetually perpetually and ever more and more um, 
And I don't mind desire. It can be made to work, okay? But I just don't understand why that popped in there when it's very clearly a soul without knowledge is not good. And then whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. That's a slow down proverb of, yeah, you know, stop, get knowledge, look ahead, choose your way. The opposite of that would be have no knowledge, whatever you think is right just because you think it, go and do whatever the opposite of profiting is. (laughs) Lose, ultimately. Okay, so a soul without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. I'm seeing now that we're at verses 3 and 4, and that's sufficient um, for this this period because this next Sunday as we record the class, we'll be picking up right around 3 and 4 and reviewing those um, as we go into the new material. This section comes to an end, and of course these sections are just very subtly placed, comes to an end at chapter 19, verse 12. At which point, at 19.13, we'll begin a new section, A Foolish Son Dealing with Fools and Foolishness. So that will, um, I mean, it's just very similar to the preceding. A Foolish Son Avoiding Fools and Foolishness. Here, A Foolish Son Dealing with Fools and Foolishness. So, in many respects, the theme will continue. Um, But we'll jump back in uh, live next week, and God willing, it'll be recorded. We'll be back on track. Thanks for joining us. The Lord be with you.